you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The first of the main events began on May 11, 1887, when bargeman Edward Hughes, anchored near the factory belonging to F.S. Hempelman in Rainham, Essex, some miles downstream outside of London, saw what he believed to be a bag floating in the river about 30 feet from his barge. He snagged it and brought it ashore and found that it was not a bag, but a package tied round the middle with rope. As he brought it in, The package fell open far enough that he could see part of the body of a woman inside. He told another dock worker, who went into town and got police. He returned with police constable stock of the Essex Constabulary, who together with his superior officer, Inspector Allen, began knocking on doors and combing the shoreline looking for any more information or additional pieces of the body. Meanwhile, the package was removed to the Phoenix Hotel in Raynham, where Coroner C.C. Lewis began the inquest on May 21st. One of the witnesses he called was Dr. Edward Galloway of nearby Barking, who carried out the postmortem on the torso. According to Dr. Galloway, the severing of the bones had been accomplished by means of a very fine instrument, and the flesh was cut as if by a person skilled in surgical operations. No other portions of the body were found, and there were no means of ascertaining when the body was dissected. Not only has the cutting up been performed in an exceedingly skillful manner, but the operation had been carried out on that part of the spine offering the least resistance to separating, and that would only be done by a person having a very intimate knowledge of anatomy. The limbs had been removed, as the doctor said, in a way suggesting medical knowledge, having been thoroughly disarticulated and popped out of the joints, rather than simply sawed off. He said that death appeared to have occurred about two weeks before the discovery, that the woman had been aged probably between 27 and 30, and likely no more than 35, and likely had stood 5 foot 3 or 5 foot 4. Only two days later, another package was found, this one floating in the Thames off Temple Pier in London. It was tied with cord identical to that found around the rain on parcel, and within was a canvas-wrapped human thigh. After a Dr. Hamerton examined the leg, Dr. Galloway was brought in again, and after finding that the leg was surgically removed from the joint, upon closer examination, he expressed his opinion that it was from the same body as that found at Raynham. The leg was taken to the city mortuary. On June 8th, another parcel, 
containing the upper portion of the torso, once again corresponding to part of the body found at Raynum, was found at the Waterloo Pier. Another, containing both lower legs, was found in the St. Pancras lock of the Regent's Canal on June 18th. Dr. Galloway said on July 21st that The thigh found in the Thames corresponded with the trunk. The chest also corresponded exactly with the trunk and had been sawed through. The collarbone and breasts had been taken off. I have formed the opinion that the trunk had been in the water about a fortnight and that the death of the woman took place in May. I have seen the remains found at St. Pancras, and I am of the opinion that they belong to the same body. On August 13th, then, another inquest was held on the completed remains. Middlesex coroner Dr. G. Danford Thomas presided, while both Dr. Galloway and Dr. Thomas Bond, later to figure in the Jack the Ripper case, gave testimony. Bond concurred with Galloway, saying that, These body parts have been removed with skill, not simply torn off to hide a murder. Bond also expanded on Galloway's earlier assertions, mentioning that it was obvious that the dead woman had never given birth. While the unsatisfying conclusion of found dead was reached after Lewis's inquest on just the torso, Thomas's inquest on the almost intact remains reached no other conclusion. Whatever became of the body, aside from being buried in an unmarked grave in one of London's cemeteries, is unclear. On September 11, 1888, just three days after the discovery of Annie Chapman's body off Hanbury Street in Whitechapel, and about two weeks before the murder of Jane Beadmore discussed in episode 83, a carpenter named Frederick Moore, employed at the Ward Lumber Yards on Grosvenor Road in Pimlico, found a human arm wedged between some logs. He called over PC William James, who took possession of it and took it to the Eaton Square Police Station. Inspector Adams, James's superior, notified Scotland Yard and called for Dr. Thomas Neville, who examined the arm. The arm appeared to be that of a young woman, somewhere around 25 years of age, apparently in fairly good health. The woman had also been of a fairly dark complexion, although later examination was to call that into question. On September 16th, the body was re-examined by Dr. Thomas Bond and Dr. Charles Hibbert, who added to the victim profile. The woman was quite tall, probably 5'9 or 5'10. Also, there was evidence that a tourniquet or ligature had been used to minimize blood loss. By even then, however, decomposition was too far advanced for much else to be determined. The Pimlico mystery, as Frederick Moore's discovery of the arm was called, soon played its part in yet another grisly tale, however. On October 1st, two carpenters employed by J. Grove and Sons, Frederick Winborn and George Bodden, were going to work at a construction site in Whitehall, where workmen were expanding an opera house into, ironically, the new premises for Scotland Yard. At around 6 a.m., they were retrieving Winborn's tools from an alcove in the cellar to, in order to begin the workday. As Winborn reached into the alcove, his fingers found something else. Lighting a match, he found a cloth-wrapped package leaning up against the wall, but he paid it no mind and grabbed his tools. The next morning, when Winborn went to retrieve his tools again, the package was still there. 
He later said something about it to his foreman, William Brown, who said they should open it and see what it was. He retrieved the package again, which was about two and a half feet long by two feet wide and tied shut with several different types of cord. Cutting it, it fell open to reveal, wrapped in newspapers and cloth, the upper torso of a woman in advanced state of decomposition. Brown summoned the police, and Detective Inspector Hawkins and two other officers of A Division came out to the construction site. In the alcove where Winborn had pulled the package from, Hawkins noticed several other portions of cloth matching that in which the body was wrapped. It appeared to be the remains of a dress. Hawkins sent for Dr. Bond, and for the second time in three weeks, the police surgeon was called to examine a dismembered corpse. The body was removed to Millbank Street Mortuary to do a thorough post-mortem. He thought it unlikely that the woman had ever given birth, and the dismemberment was all done post-mortem. The vertebrae had been sawed through, although the arms, from what he could tell, had been disarticulated as had those of the, of the Raynham corpse. Death had occurred possibly up to two months before, and the fact that one of the newspapers in which the torso had been wrapped was an issue of the Echo from August 24th would seem to support his assertion. Acting on a hunch, he fit the arm from Pimlico to the torso. Both were clearly parts of the same woman. The Pimlico mystery, therefore, was now part of the Whitehall mystery. He had also been able to determine that the woman had pale skin, making it likely that Dr. Neville's earlier finding that the woman to whom the arm had belonged had been darker skinned was likely due to discoloration of the flesh from the decomposition. The police began combing the area with bloodhounds, searching for more pieces of the body. As London police searched for further remains, a report came from Guildford that it was believed that a severed leg and foot, from which the flesh had been boiled, found near the train station on August 24th had been some of the remains of the Whitehall victim. That was the approximate time of death, after all. But the leg was examined by Dr. Bond and Dr. Hibbert, both of whom declared it unequivocally that of a bear and not a human at all. A story came to light that an Edward Dushar, riding on board a train in Vauxhall, said that there was a fellow passenger carrying a foul-smelling bundle. He was a stocky man with a goatee. The car arrived at St. George's Circus in Lambeth, and the man with the package disembarked. This was towards the end of September, and on the morning of September 28th, a young boy found a parcel lying on the grounds of a hospital for the blind, located just off St. George's Circus, containing a partially decomposed arm. On October 5th, a letter was forwarded to Constable Adolphus Williamson by Thomas Boeing of the Central News Agency. The letter, the so-called Moab and Midian letter, was essentially from Jack the Ripper, who denied responsibility for the Whitehall torso. However, the letter itself didn't appear at Scotland Yard, only Boeing's transcription of it. Since Thomas Boeing is su suspected of having hoaxed the infamous Dear Boss letter, and this one used the phrase Dear Boss as well, it's likely this was another hoax. It was two weeks before any more finds were made. On October 17th, journalist Jasper Waring was examining the crime scene with a hunting dog. When the dog picked up on an odor and dug up a buried human leg in a similar state of decay as the other portions of the body. 
The leg was buried in the same alcove that the body had been found in. As the Times described the incident, the scene is described as a very weird one, for the only illumination of the dismal place was by candles, and the dog did not seem in the best form, this possibility arising from the strange surroundings. Dr. Thomas Bond examined the leg and said that it belonged to the same body. So police were now in possession of the torso and half of one leg from the cellar in Whitehall, one arm from Pimlico, and one from the hospital in Lambeth. No further body parts could be found, and like Raynham, the verdict was simply found dead. Probably the most grisly of the events began to unfold on June 4, 1889. On that day, some boys near St. George's Stairs near the south end of Tower Bridge were throwing rocks at an object in the river, which appeared to be an apron or something similar. They pulled it to shore and were horrified to discover the lower part of a woman's torso. A dock worker employed at Cole's Upper Wharf by the name of John Ryan summoned a passing river policeman. The same day, a 15-year-old boy named Isaac Brett descended the stairs from Battersea Park onto the embankment of the Thames, deciding to go for a swim underneath the Albert Bridge. While in the water, he saw, bobbing past him, some object which was wrapped in what appeared to be clothing. He brought it to shore, and a passerby, doubtless remembering the various torso events, said that before the boy opened it, he should just take it to the police. This he did, and Sergeant William Briggs of V Division undid the bootlaces holding the package shut. Inside was found a left thigh wrapped in clothing consisting of bits of a checkered coat and a pair of underwear bearing the name L.E. Fisher. With two fines in the same day, police combed the embankments and began to trawl the river looking for additional parts. Dr. William Kempster examined the pieces and felt confident they came from the same individual. He furthermore said they hadn't been in the water long, and it appeared that the woman had been dead for no more than a day. Battersea Park was also site of the next find on June 6th, when groundskeeper Joseph Davis found another package, this one tied with white string. Inside, wrapped in a burgundy skirt, he found the chest and some unspecified organs. The site of the find was an area of the park off-limits to the public, although still technically accessible. It was about 100 feet inside the park from the gate near the south end of the Albert Bridge, and thus very near to where Isaac Brett had found the thigh two days earlier. June 6 was to prove an eventful day, with Charles Murto finding a neck and shoulders at Covington's Wharf almost directly opposite where the arm of the Whitehall victim had been found, just off the Grosvenor Railway Bridge, and David Keene finding some unspecified body parts near the Palace Wharf in Nine Elms. On June 7th, an itinerant worker named Solomon Hearn discovered the lower part of the right leg with a foot attached lying on the north bank of the river near Wandsworth Bridge. It had been wrapped in fragments of the same checkered coat as had the piece Isaac Brett found. And the same day, there were two more discoveries, with Joseph Woodward finding an indistinct piece of flesh believed by Dr. William Kempster to be part of a human lung at Palace Wharf the same place David Keene had found parts the previous day, and Edward Stanton finding a lower left leg and foot wrapped in a sleeve of the checkered coat a considerable way downstream, 
off the West India docks at the Isle of Dogs. And June 8th was to yield the final pieces. Dock worker William Chidley found a left arm in a package wrapped with brown paper floating in the river at Bankside, just off the Cannon Street Railway Bridge, and then the river police located parts of the back floating in the middle of the river, somewhere between Battersea Park Pier and the Albert Bridge. But the last and oddest discovery that day came when a journalist named Claude Malore, covering the torso case, was milling about the Chelsea side of the river, not far from the Royal Hospital, when in the yard of a riverside estate, he located a package and returned it to the presence of a policeman. It was found to contain the right thigh. The odd thing? The estate was the home of Sir Percy Shelley, son of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. The irony of a severed arm being found on the property of someone whose family is closely associated with the story of a creature built from body parts needs no mention. Interestingly, postings on the Casebook Jack the Ripper message boards indicate that the house next door to Shelley's was the estate of John Paget Malore, QC, who, if my ancestry searches don't fail me, was Claude Malore's brother and might reveal why Claude was in the neighborhood. So, with the body now complete, save for, once again, the head, the police switched focus from recovery of the parts to attempting an identification of who it might have been. Doctors Bond, Kempster, and Hibbert, associated with all the Thames torso killings so far, examined the mostly complete remains, even while police kept up the search for the dead woman's head. They found that the victim had blondish hair and pale skin, stood probably 5 foot 4 in height, was aged somewhere between 24 and 35, and had likely met her death on June 1st or 2nd. Most significantly, it was found that the woman had been pregnant at the time of her death, likely six or seven months. They walked back earlier implications of the killer's skill level and said that the remains show not the anatomical knowledge of a surgeon, but rather the aptitude learnt by a butcher, horse knacker, or other person used to deal with dead animals and to readily separate limbs at the joints. Dr. Thomas Bond displayed a similar ambiguity about the apparent skill level of Jack the Ripper. Further, it was concluded that much of the clothing was of good quality, but several years old. In the ongoing search for the head, Jasper Waring and his dog were even brought in again, but it was still futile and the head was never found. Dr. Braxton Hicks opened the inquest into the body on June 16th at the Star and Garter pub in Battersea. First and most relevant witness was Dr. Thomas Bond, who testified as to the findings of the medical examination. He also mentioned that he had met with Sir Robert Anderson, and while many people have taken this as a sign that the torso killings were the work of Jack the Ripper, it also must be remembered that as Assistant Commissioner of Scotland Yard, Anderson would have had purview over much of the crime in London. Bond also said that, in his opinion, the fines at Raynham and Whitehall were victims of the same criminal. Since the victim had been pregnant, there was of course the theory of a botched abortion proposed, but he said that no evidence could be found of that, not of a physical one anyway. Since the stomach was one of the missing internal organs, he couldn't rule out a chemically induced one, however. 
After hearing from the discoverers of the various body parts, Dr. Hicks adjourned the inquest until July 1st to allow for any new police findings. As it happens, there was one. While the inquest was adjourned, a woman named Catherine Jackson came forward to view the body. After identifying the victim's clothing as well as several scars and other marks on the body, she identified the dead woman as her daughter Elizabeth. Elizabeth Jackson was 24, 5'5 in height, and had reddish-blonde hair, all of which tallied with the doctor's findings. She was originally from Chelsea and estranged from her family, with whom she was quarreling about her, quote, picking up men for immoral purposes. Catherine said she had last seen Elizabeth on May 31st, only a day or two before her death. Noticing her estranged daughter's pregnancy, Elizabeth told her that a man she had been seeing named John Faircloth was the father. She had parted ways with John Faircloth, who was apparently abusive, at the end of April. What happened to Elizabeth after she left her mother is unknown, and the next known of her, she was floating down the river in pieces. The inquest resumed and was suspended once more, finally concluding on July 26th and declaring that Elizabeth Jackson was murdered by person or persons unknown. The general feeling seems to have been that she was killed by John Faircloth. About a month and a half later, on September 11th, 1889, Police Constable William Pennant was patrolling the area just north of St. Catherine's Docks when he entered Pension Street. It was about 5.25 a.m. when he entered one of the railway arches and found wrapped in a blood-stained chemise the naked torso of a woman. It was lying on its stomach, and though legs and head had been cut off, it still had the arms. He stopped a passing worker and sent him to get some other police. Pennant was certain no body had been present at the time of his last trip through the railway arch, about a half an hour before. Three men found sleeping in a nearby railway arch were arrested and questioned, but it was quickly determined they had nothing to do with the crime. Dr. Wynne Baxter promptly launched an inquest, on the first day speaking mainly to police officers including P.C. Pennant. He then adjourned the inquest until doctors can complete the postmortem. When he resumed, he spoke to Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who commonly featured in the Ripper investigation. He told Baxter that there were signs of disease in both the liver and lungs of the dead woman, and that she was likely an alcoholic. I have no reason for thinking that the person who cut up the body had any anatomical knowledge, he told Baxter. He agreed with the, most of the conclusions earlier mentioned by his assistant, a Dr. Clark. Clark had said that no rigor mortis was apparent in the body, and only a tiny bit of blood was to be found in the railway arch all of which had oozed from the wounds. This would indicate that the woman was killed elsewhere and dumped. Four bruises on the back and hip were consistent with a fall and then several kicks. There were several marks on the arms that appeared to be post-mortem, possibly inflicted during the dismemberment. The woman was in her early 30s, no more than 35, likely stood about 5 foot 3, and the wounds were likely done by a left-hander. A verdict was rendered of willful murder by person or persons unknown. Who the victim was was never identified, though she was theorized to be Lydia Hart, a local woman who had gone missing. In the end, 
The pension torso was preserved in alcohol and buried in plot 16185 at the East London Cemetery in Plaistow. These four events are the canonical murders making up the Thames Torso series, but there are others that may or may not be associated. We live our entire lives knowing that death awaits us. Many believe that some part of us endures. Eyewitnesses swear to have seen spirits of the dead haunting the living and even appearing during alien abductions. Is the UFO mystery reaching out to us from beyond the stars or from beyond the grave? This staggering implication demands not only scrutiny of the UFO phenomenon, but near-death experiences, ancient monuments, ley lines, the fey folk, cryptids, and more. I'm Joshua Cutchin. I'd like to invite you into the Ecology of Souls, a new mythology of death and the paranormal, a comprehensive theory of all things supernatural framed through the lens of our final transition. Join me as we journey from the depths of prehistory to the present, from the outer space of the cosmos to the inner space of the self. Ecology of Souls, Volumes 1 and 2, now available from Amazon in print and as a combined ebook. Welcome to the Ecology of Souls. The first of these, and probably the most grisly of the bunch, is the so-called Battersea mystery which unfolded over a decade before. On the morning of September 5, 1873, Richard Fane, an officer with the Thames Police, was patrolling near the Battersea Waterworks, which is right beside the Battersea Power Station, famous from the cover of Pink Floyd's Animals, when he found something he at first took for a piece of pork lying on the shore. It proved to be a woman's breast. It was taken to the Battersea Police Station, where it was examined by Dr. William Kempster. A few hours later, a railroad policeman named Henry Locke was at Brunswick Wharf in Nine Elms when he saw something he thought was a sheepskin float by. He threw rocks at it and then boarded a barge and had the bargeman retrieve it. It proved to be the right side of a torso. By now, the Thames police were on the lookout for further body parts. About 6.45 on the morning of September 7th, Policeman John Parker was walking along the riverbank at Duke Shore in Limehouse when he saw a cluster of people. He walked over to see what they were looking at and found one of the goriest finds I've ever heard of. A skinned human face. Think of the skin mask Leatherface has in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you're not far off. It still had hair and ears attached. From the pieces that had come in already, Dr. Kempster could tell that the woman was about 40 and had been pregnant at some point. He felt that the two pieces of torso retrieved had been in the water for a short time, no more than a day or two. She had long dark hair and pierced ears, and some abrasions on the head as well as a sizable wound on the temple indicated that she had likely been struck with some instrument. She had a large burn scar on her chest, and dismemberment had again been post-mortal though he thought from muscle retraction that it had been almost immediately so. The two pieces of torso definitely came from the same body, and he felt confident in saying that the face had as well. 
and more parts remain to be found. On September 8th, a left thigh was found by Thomas Devin by Thomas Evans at the Woolwich Dockyard. It was crudely sawn off at the hip, but it had been neatly disarticulated at the knee joint. Richard Stratford found an upper right arm and part of a shoulder off Blackwall Point in Greenwich, again roughly sawn off above, but disarticulated at the elbow. The arm had some tar clinging to it, which had probably been picked up as it collided with ropes and barges on its way downriver. A railway employee from Kent named named William Bennett, found a pelvis and upper thighs in the water near the Royal Arsenal, again in Woolwich, on September 9th. John Prince, a right forearm disarticulated the elbow and wrist. By some coincidence, William Prince, John's brother, also found an arm by Albert Bridge. The arm displayed two bruises above the wrist, as if someone had grabbed the woman's hand roughly. In all, 14 pieces were discovered by September 15th. The unusual step was taken of sewing the body parts together and stretching the face over a frame to attempt to facilitate identification. But it did nothing of the kind. Several leads came in about missing persons, true, but none none panned out. One proposed identity was a Mrs. Cayley of Chelsea, and the lead was looking promising for quite a while but eventually Mrs. Cayley was found. Finally, on September 15th, a verdict of willful murder against person or persons unknown was reached, and with that, the case was dead. The next year saw two more events worthy of mention. On June 5th, 1874, a torso with only one leg and no arms was found in the Thames off the Fulham Railway Bridge. And on September 5th, A dredger by the name of Adamson was at work not far from the Blackfriars Railway Bridge when he found the body of a woman, about 40, with one leg and one arm cut off, and most of her hair either cut off or ripped out. She had been in the river nearly a month. An open verdict of found dead was reached. Little are known about either of these finds. Both of these, to my mind, might be unfortunate accidents. While that found on June 5th might conceivably be a murder, since the dismemberment was more severe for one of a better word, the dead woman found near Blackfriars has the feel of an accident. Both were found near railway bridges, and it's possible they're just unfortunate people hit by a train as they attempted to cross. The detail of the woman's hair being gone could be down to being damaged by Adamson's dredging machine. On September 25, 1884, Charles Fitch was surprised and horrified to find, in the gardens of Mornington Crescent on the eastern periphery of Regent's Park, a left foot and right arm, practically skeletonized. Mornington Crescent is near where the legs of the Raynal Mystery would be found three years later. Almost a month later, on the morning of October 23rd, William Meager and Joseph Rawlinson were collecting trash from Alfred Mews, off Hampstead Road, when Meager took notice of a wrapped package near a dustbin. He paid it no mind, and Rawlinson delivered the trash to King's Cross. When the cart was being unloaded, it was found that the package Meager had noticed contained a partially defleshed human head. The cart was searched, and a large quantity of dark dark brown hair covered in a foul-smelling white powder was found. Later, 
Railway men were, to, were sent to search Alfred Mews, and a piece of a thigh was found by George Means. At about 7.15 the same morning, George Peck, the gardener at Bedford Square, right across the street from the British Museum, noticed a foul smell. He began searching through the garden and found a newspaper-wrapped package. The newspaper was a page from the London Daily Chronicle dated October 20, 1884. Inside was a left arm coated in a white powder. A similar white powder was found on the iron fence between the garden and the road. The finds were examined by Dr. Samuel Lloyd, whose opinion was that they had come from a woman aged between 25 and 40 and who had long dark brown hair. The arm found in Bedford Square had a red and black tattoo encircling the wrist. The parts also seemed somewhat compressed, and Dr. Lloyd theorized they had been stored in some sort of confined area and possibly stacked on one another, such as a wheelbarrow. This feature was also to be noticed with some of the parts found in 1874 as well. He placed the time of the death at four to six months previous. At about 8 a.m., P.C. John Watts found another package tossed over the iron fencing at 33 Fitzroy Square. This package was wrapped in a page of the standard, the date is not given. This package contained the lower part of a torso and pelvis. An inquest into the finds, all of which had been made along Tottenham Court Road, was launched on November 10th by Dr. Danford Thomas. Unfortunately, with that, the story of the Tottenham Court Road finds disappears from the press. Last that's mentioned is Dr. Lloyd trying to get permission to exhume the Mornington Crescent parts to try to determine whether they had belonged to the same corpse as the October finds did. And with that, it disappears, without even a mention to a conclusion of the inquest or any hint where the parts ended up. Also technically unsolved, though like the 1874 corpse is unlikely to be related, was the death of Jesse Durian. A 45-year-old woman, Durian was last seen entering a carriage on Hackney Road on December 29, 1898. About a month later, two severed legs were found in the Regent's Canal followed by a severely damaged corpse missing both legs, found off the Cat and Mutton Bridge. The body was identified as Jesse Durian in an inquest held by Dr. William Wynne Westcott of Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn fame. It was also determined that she had died by drowning, though the manner in which she ended up in the water, and technically the manner in which she lost her legs, were unknown. The severe damage to her corpse all determined to have been post-mortem, was thought to have resulted from the body being damaged by passing boots, and it seems likely that her legs became detached either in this manner or by decomposition. In 2002, R. Michael Gordon argued in the Thames Torso Murders of Victorian London that these killings were linked with another grisly tale which had unfolded in the Mont Rouge district on the southern edge of Paris in 1886. The district of Mont Rouge sprung up among the Port d'Orleans, one of the primary hubs of rail traffic moving into Paris in those days. One of the workers employed at, the, at these rail yards, a man named Pamplume, was walking home around midnight early on the morning of August 5th. As he passed the large church of St. Pierre, he noticed a large bundle lying near an outbuilding, 
and got the attention of a nearby police officer. He and the policeman cut the rope holding the wax cloth package closed. Within, wrapped in a green silk petticoat, they found two arms severed at the shoulders and two lower legs, apparently those of a woman. Shortly upon discovery and examination, the police began combing the nearby streets for the rest of the remains. Two blocks to the west, near 131 Rue de Ligia, they found a second package containing the thighs and part of the back, and six blocks to the south, in a grassy area on the south side of the Rue Giordano Bruno, a third package, wrapped in a gray paper, was found. It had apparently been discarded hurriedly, as it had been tossed on the ground and not as not hidden as were the other two. In this, they found the front section of a torso. The woman's head and right breast were never recovered. That said, it was easily determined that all these body parts did, indeed, belong to the same woman. But their investigations into the Le Mestier de Montrouge, as it was called, fizzled out soon afterwards. With no identity for the victim, the police couldn't really follow up on it, and while they did have theories, all came to naught. The only additional findings were a piece of black ribbon fringed with black beads found on the Rue Giordano Bruno where the third portion of the body had been found. And a few days later, a young girl in the neighborhood found a fourth package, this one containing not the missing head and breast, but a mass of brown hair in a half-burnt letter. Whether these were connected to the grisly discoveries of a few days before or not was never determined for certain. Short of finding that the dismemberment was carried out by an untrained hand, and not a doctor or surgeon, that was that. Another he felt may warrant a connection to the Thames series was the so-called Lambeth Mystery. Early on the morning of June 8, 1902, Charles Whiting and Robert Munzer, two employees at the Royal Dalton Pottery Works in the Lambeth section of London, found something horrid lying in Salamanca Place, an alleyway which ran beside the factory, at about 4 a.m. Jack, here's a head and the remains of a body, Whiting informed the night watchman, John Cox. Cox took one look into the alleyway and cautiously approached the object to confirm that it was what Whiting thought. And once confirmed, he ran into the street and got Police Constable Burton. Burton arrived and was greeted by a horrible sight, a pile of human body parts. He saw a head, a torso, arms, and the lower parts of the legs. Both the upper parts of the legs and the feet were missing. Some other police were summoned, and the various men present couldn't agree on whether the parts had been dumped, whether the parts had been dumped from a sack, as most thought, jumbled as they were, or placed where they were found. P.C. Burton got an empty wooden box, loaded the pieces inside, and hauled them up to the Lambeth Mortuary and the cemetery at Paradise Street and Lambeth High Road. Now a park, disturbingly enough and I believe the, the mortuary to which Burton took the body is still there. At the mortuary, the parts were examined by the police surgeon, Dr. George Henry Nickel. He found that most of it was charred and blackened as if it had been thrown into a fire to burn, but the perpetrator grew either bored or anxious and pulled them out before the fire had done much more than singe them. The skull, meanwhile, appeared to have been boiled for quite some time, 
Most of the flesh was gone, with only a fringe around the ears left. The woman, for it was clearly a woman, somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age, was fairly small, only about 5 feet tall and of a slight build. She was dark-complected, as if of Mediterranean or possibly Middle Eastern origin, with long black hair, a pointed chin, and prominent cheekbones. The dismemberment, he said, appeared to have been an amateurish job, likely carried out with a common carpenter's saw, clearly not the work of anyone with medical skill. All organs had been removed, and when he examined the teeth, Dr. Nickel found three of the upper teeth had been broken off, but the look of them was more consistent with having been broken off deliberately, rather than as the result of being, say, struck in the mouth. He also felt the de- that the death of the woman had been due to strangulation, though exactly how he arrived at this conclusion, Dr. Nickel never said, or the information was never released at any rate. Detective Inspector John McCarthy took charge of the case. The body must have been dumped sometime between 3.30 and 4 a.m., the time between the last patrol past Salamanca Place by P.C. Burton, when the body was definitely not present, and the body's discovery by Whiting and Munsell. Realizing that boiling and burning a body was likely to have required an industrial setting, the police inquired at factories, brickworks, and the likes in the area. Salamanca Place was also just off the Southwestern Railway, so McCarthy and his men also made inquiries at the stations on that line as to whether anyone with a large sack or bag was seen, but got nowhere, presumably because seeing someone carrying large cases in a train station isn't exactly a rare thing. One place which I presume they looked into was Dalton's itself. As a pottery factory, making mainly stoneware, there would have been both water and large furnaces present. But like so many of the others, the case fell into obscurity soon after. The woman was never identified, and without knowing who she was, it was unlikely the killer would ever be caught. All leads McCarthy pursued came to nothing. As for the watchman John Cox, after he had retrieved Burton, he went promptly to a newspaper, even going so far as to ask pedestrians on Waterloo Bridge which which was the best paper to report the finding to. The murder, for such it appeared to be, was thus reported on by the media promptly the next morning. Unsurprisingly, given the time, place, and savagery, it was often compared to Jack the Ripper in the press. It seems an unfitting comparison, but I suppose if you're under the assumption that the Pynchon Street torso and Whitehall mystery were his handiwork, as was often suggested by the press, it's at least somewhat understandable. Bizarrely, though, Press reports from other places, New Zealand for one, compare the murder to that committed Henry Wainwright. In 1874, Henry Wainwright of Whitechapel murdered Harriet Lane. In 1875, as he no longer owned the warehouse in which she was buried, he dug up the body and dismembered it in a manner similar to the Salamanca Place body. Author M.J. Trow, however, dismisses both these cases as having been connected with the Thames series, and both La Mystere de Montrouge and the Lambeth Mystery, a clumsiness and lack of skill was noted in the dismemberments, a clumsiness apparently inconsistent with the earlier cases.
I agree that a murder in Paris is unlikely to be connected. But I'm unsure about the Lambeth case. While there are significant differences, Salamanca Place is only a few blocks from the Thames and is directly opposite Battersea and Chelsea, where many of the torso incidents originated. And since it's a good 15 years after the others, it's possible someone could have lost some of the dexterity they once had, and their work, for want of a better word, is sloppier. It very well may not have been the same offender. In fact, I would bet on the fact that it's not. But it's at least possible. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google Map available, marked with all the locations of the various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, till next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.